Well, there are so many things that I love about being United Methodist. Obviously, I'm a United Methodist pastor. You would hope that, right? But there are so many things I love about being United Methodist. I love how connectional we are as a church. I love how we hold together social justice and evangelism. I love that we're a big tent denomination uh, comprised of many different kinds of people. I love the emphasis on the relationship between personal holiness, like my relationship with Jesus, and social holiness, our call to to make disciples and to be a part of God's transforming work in the world. Those were all the things that I was listening for as I was um, asking a candidate who was interviewing to transfer into the United Methodist denomination why he wanted to become United Methodist. What is it about our United Methodist way that captivates you. That's what I, that's what I asked him. And he, and he thought for a moment, and then he said this. I want to be a part of a church that gives grace a chance. I want to be a part of a church that gives grace a chance. And in that moment, I realized, like what I had probably known deep down in my heart, that's what I love most about being United Methodist too. We give grace a chance. United Methodists have a robust and beautiful understanding of God's grace that informs and undergirds virtually every part of who we are. We are graceful. Now, grace is one of those faith words that we say a lot, right? We talk as though we know what it means, and think we understand it. Methodists define grace as the undeserved, unmerited, loving action of God in human existence through the Holy Spirit. The unmerited, undeserved, loving action of God in human existence through the Holy Spirit. And I want to take the next three weeks and unpack the richness the United Methodist understanding of God's grace in its three dimensions, prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace. I think now more than ever, we need a fresh expression, experience, understanding of God's grace in our lives. Here's why. Earlier this winter, we were having a fire in our fire bowl in the backyard. Um, I had gotten the fire going, and it was burning great, and then it started to, uh, started to die down. Maybe the wood was a little bit uh, damp or wet or something. and So it started to die down into kind of the glowing embers, sticks, and logs. So I did what any well-intentioned hero dad would do, and I went to the garage and I got out my battery-powered leaf blower. And I aimed and I turned that baby on. And, uh, well... Needless to say, what was just sparks and fading glow quickly turned back into a roaring fire very quickly. That moving air proved to be the fuel that revived the fire. I, I have a feeling, it's just a feeling, I have a feeling that many of us are in need of a similar revival. We long for a fire in our hearts and our souls that we haven't felt for far too long. Maybe it was because of COVID, maybe something else, maybe a combination. For whatever reason, it's like we've kind of, we've died down inside. The fire is a a small spark. 
My prayer is that this series on grace would prove to be like that wind blowing over the spark, that hearing and embracing God's amazing grace in all its beauty and all of its dimensions would fan the sparks, the coals of our hearts once more into full-fledged, roaring flames. Today we begin with prevenient grace, God's grace that goes before. Let us pray. God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there, grow us, and transform us so that we might live for you and bear fruit for your kingdom. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, although it really could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because uh, the Holy Spirit is kind of the primary character. Uh, nonetheless, our scripture is from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, uh, beginning with verse 16. Listen for God's word. While Paul waited for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. He began to interact with the Jews and Gentile God worshippers in the synagogue. He also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in a discussion too. Some said, what an amateur, what is he trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him into custody and brought him to the council on Mars Hill. What is this new teaching? Can we learn what you're talking about? You've told us some strange things, and we want to know what they mean. They said this because all Athenians, as well as all the foreigners who live in Athens, used to spend their time doing nothing but talking about or listening to the newest thing. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nation so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God we live, move, and exist. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone image made by human skill and thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof on this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule Paul. However, others said, we'll hear from you about this again. At that, Paul left the council. Some people joined him and came to believe, including Dionysius, a member of the council on Mars Hill, a woman named Damaris, and several others. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, when I was in high school and in college, I participated with my church and several other churches in a uh, mission trip called Appalachia Service Project. It was a 
home repair ministry in rural Appalachia. And every year before leaving, we would always have a training day uh, where we would be taught how and what to pack, how to hold a hammer the right way, how to speak respectfully to the people's homes we would be working on and not say things like, hey, when are we going to tear down this ugly wall? All of those were important. But the most important thing, the thing that has stuck with me now, especially that I'm a pastor, was when our leader would tell us, and remember, y'all, God got there first. God has been there long before we get there. This is the essence of prevenient grace. God gets there first. God goes first. Prevenient is just an old English word that means going before. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, likened this dimension of God's grace to a porch. If the journey of faith is like a house, then prevenient grace is the front porch of faith, seeking to draw us in. This is what Paul taps into in our scripture passage this morning. This scripture passage takes place in the midst of one of Paul's uh, missionary journeys. Paul has just visited Thessalonica to, uh, to preach and to teach about Jesus, only to be driven out by a mob. He went on to Berea and taught in the synagogue there, only to have the same mob from Thessalonica find him there and drive him out as well. So he finally goes to Athens. He may have arrived there, but he's operating under the assumption that God got there first and was already at work. That God's prevenient or going before preparatory presence was already up to something. It's what allowed him to connect. We can see it in what and how he speaks to the Athenians. He realizes that, that Athens is a place of debate and conversation around new ideas. And so he begins to address anyone who will listen, preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And Epicurean and Stoic philosophers take him to Mars Hill and they say, what's, hey, what's this new, new teaching? Can we learn what you're talking about? You've told us some strange things and we want to know what they mean. And what a gift, right? Paul is presented with an open forum to share the gospel of Jesus. God's grace is going before Paul, presenting him with an opportunity. And they're open enough to hear what he has to say. Even though these Athenians have never heard of or, or responded uh, or embraced Jesus, they are used to hearing and discussing new ideas and philosophies. So whether they realize it or not, God's going before grace has prompted a holy curiosity by creating the possibility for a response to God. Possibility for a response to God. Front porch. So Paul leans in more. Paul affirms how religious they are. In other words, they know what it means to be devoted to something, even if it's the wrong thing. Like God can still work with that, that sense of devotion. As I was walking through the streets of your town, Paul says, I saw all your objects of worship, even an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. In other words, like it's clear you're seeking after the divine. God is, is wooing you, trying to woo you 
You're on the porch, but you just, you just don't know it yet. He goes on, what you worship is unknown, I now proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he's the one who gives life and breath and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. Paul is articulating provenient grace here. Provenient grace begins with the truth that since God made everything and is Lord over everything and gives life to everything, God takes responsibility for what God has made and is universally present with God's creation in every place. Of course, God can't be contained in human-made things. God gives life to all things. And so Paul then goes on to say how God creates an environment in which no matter which, which nation, which belief system someone comes from, that nevertheless people would seek after God, would, would reach out for God and perhaps find God because God is not far from each of us. So Paul's saying there's this, this holy desire, this curiosity woven into our DNA to seek the divine. And that God, the creator of all people, is close enough to be found. In other words, God is always wooing. Always wooing. God's graceful Presence permeates all of life with potential for beauty and, uh, and goodness and truth and love, all pointing us to God. And it's universally available. This grace is universally available to all people because God is present alike in every place. And so this, this simultaneous desire to find God and God's desire to woo us is prevenient grace. God was already at work in the Athenians' lives trying to draw them to God. God gets there first. As 1 John 4 says, we love because God first loved us. We're drawn by grace to grace. We are drawn by God to God. And then hopefully we respond. And this is our story too. Nobody, nobody wakes up one morning and says, hey, I think I'm going to give my life to Jesus today. I'm going to start making the ways of Jesus uh, my ways because it was their idea. No, the only way someone can wake up one morning and say that is because of the wooing, going before, preparing, pursuing work in presence of God. In other words, because of prevenient grace. Long before a confession of faith, Long before a life-changing decision to follow Jesus, God was and is already pursuing us, communicating God's love to us, planting seeds, working through other people and, and, and situations and things to cause us to look in God's direction and draw us into relationship with God's own self. Oftentimes, we don't, we don't recognize it in the moment, and yet we, we've been standing on the front porch the whole time. 
Think about your own life for a second. Maybe you were, you were fortunate enough to have parents or grandparents who took you to church and, and taught you Bible verses and stories when you were little. Maybe a, a high school friend or a college roommate invited you again and again and again to her small group where you felt the love and the acceptance that you longed for in that season and you got that experience right when you needed it. Maybe you hit rock bottom and a mentor or, or a coworker uh, modeled the ways of, of Jesus, what following Jesus looked like in, in a way that you needed. Maybe you saw a Facebook post. Uh, someone shared uh, about a church and, and you decided to look at their website and you came across a, just a compelling message about, about Jesus. Maybe you read a book. Maybe you saw a movie and it sparked something in, in you. Whatever the case God has been coming to you disguised as your life for your whole life. The love of family, the shutting of one door and the opening of another, a longing for a home you didn't know you wanted, Christian community, sacraments, a longing for meaning and purpose and awareness that you couldn't fix things on your own, a feeling of being sick and tired of being sick and tired, a delight in the beauty all around, a longing for justice, a hunger for relationships, a quest for spirituality, prompting you to at least consider God, look in God's direction. God has been wooing you from the moment you took your first breaths. God has been working through the details of your life to win your affection. God has been whispering, I love you, to the very depths of your being, seeking your love in return. All of this, all of this is prevenient grace. All of this is God going first. God getting there first. God's work in our lives preceding our awareness of it and our response to it. So why does this matter? What's the big deal? Here's why it matters. Here's why it's so incredibly beautiful. It means that no one is beyond rescue and redemption. No one. Prevenient grace Take seriously the seriousness of sin and the tragic damage of God's image in humanity. But we believe that God's going before grace prevents the total destruction of that divine image in all of us. However far we are, however distorted our identity, however confused or hurt, bruised and broken, scattered and scared, God's prevenient grace doesn't allow our ultimate identity as God's beloved children to go away and relentlessly woos us, prepares us for redemption and healing and wholeness. God can and will use anything to draw us to God. Another religion or philosophy, a tragedy, a success, a friend, an enemy, a sunrise, a teardrop. With God getting there first, with prevenient grace, no one is beyond redemption. Why does this matter? What's the big deal? It's why we, with joy, baptize infants. To declare that, yes, this child has no idea how much God loves them, but God knows how much God loves them and is already at work in their lives. God gets into their little heart and life long before they decide anything. 
Why wait? So, I mean, provenient grace is salvific in its orientation and direction. Like, that's its aim. And God is getting to work so that one day they'll find themselves on the vast wide porch of faith and be able to step through the doorway and say yes to Jesus for themselves. Why does this matter? What's the big deal? It empowers and informs our mission in the world. That's why early Methodists preached the gospel boldly in prisons and and coal mines because they trusted that God was already there and working. Knowing God is present somewhere before we get there should give us great comfort and guidance and hope and boldness when we love and serve and share the good news with our neighbors. Because instead of figuring out how we can bring Jesus to people, it allows us to ask, what is God already up to and how can I join in? What's God already doing there? How can I join in? It allows us to help people discover how Jesus has already been at work in their lives. Provenient grace. I think back to that dying fire. The truth is, friends, you need to know that deep within you is a divine spark that cannot be put out. And Not only has God put that divine spark in you, but God is also seeking constantly to fan it into flame, full-blown flames of love for God and neighbor. Will we respond to that grace? May we see and know and embrace anew that amazing grace that goes before The God who gets there first.